I'd like you all to welcome uh, Timothy Leary. Terrence McKenna means a great deal to me. Uh, I would say he's one of the five or six most important people on the planet. I can't even think of any others. Uh, <laughs> short-term memory loss, but... <laughs> By the way, the role that Terrence is playing right now is one that takes not only vision, but it also takes fucking courage. child of the 60s, born in 1946, went to Berkeley as a freshman in 1965, uh, did the India circuit, did the LSD circuit, went to South America. I've written a number of books about uh, shamanism and hallucinogens and uh, psychoactive plants. And I share an idea, which is that the world is moving at an ever greater acceleration towards some kind of complete redefining of all aspects of reality.
good evening or good morning to you. Wherever you might be, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's Monday night, the 3rd of April, 2006. And I'm glad to be with you guys here tonight. It's a special day. It's a special uh, show. And we'll get right to it here. All right? Okay, uh, listen, a big thank you, first of all, to uh, to John Lash for uh, a wonderful program last week. John, of course, uh, amazing, intelligent, very well-spoken, and a wonderful program. So big thank you to John, and thanks to, uh, to Martin Lind as well for providing the music for the show last week. Tonight, as I said, it's April 3rd, and it is a special day in my world. It is the six-year anniversary of the passing over to the other side of my friend and mentor and teacher, Terrence McKenna, one of the most remarkable individuals I've ever experienced. And tonight, his brother, uh, his younger brother, as a matter of fact, a remarkable individual in his own right, Dr. Dennis McKenna, uh, will be on the program, a much-anticipated appearance, which uh, myself and many listeners have been looking forward to for a long time. And if that weren't enough, we've also got Stephen Herod Buner. And Stephen's been on the program before as well. He's the author of uh, a number of amazing books. Uh, the Lost Language of Plants, of course, one that uh, is my favorite, but he's written a number of things. So uh, Dennis McKenna and Stephen Herod Buner tonight together and... We'll have that for you in about an hour or so. Stephen is also uh, an herbalist, an amazing herbalist. He's an ecologist. Uh, as I said, he's the author of The Lost Language of Plants, this amazing book. Most of you are familiar with Dennis and what he's done over the years. Uh, so you're in for a treat tonight. All right? And it is a special day. And let me tell you something else, all right? Last night was a special night. More about that another time, but suffice to say this, all right, and I hope you're listening, and this is to everybody out there within the sound of my voice. Last night something was born, and last night something was planted, and it was good, and I'm tired, uh, but uh, we're going to have a wonderful show tonight. All right, it is springtime. And uh, that's become quite apparent lately. It was a nice weekend, some nice weather, amazing storm last night. And I was doing some yard work, got leaves and bonfires going all over the place, new buds appearing on the trees, flowers starting to peek up. Wonderful, wonderful, life-affirming stuff everywhere. So uh, with that in mind... I think that I will read a poem, do something a little bit, uh, a little bit different for the beginning of the program uh, tonight. It's a poem that's sort of been with me for the last few days, and it's called Flower Chorus. It was written by the magnificent Ralph Waldo Emerson sometime in the mid-19th century. Not sure exactly when, <clears throat> uh, but it goes like this.
flower chorus. Such a commotion under the ground when March called, Ho there, ho! Such spreading of rootlets far and wide, such whisperings to and fro. Are you ready? The snowdrop asked. Tis time to start, you know. Almost, my dear, the silly replied. I'll follow as soon as you go. Then ha ha ha, chorus came, of laughter sweet and low, from millions of flowers under the ground, yes, millions beginning to grow. I'll promise my blossoms, the crocus said, when I hear the blackbird sing. And straight thereafter, Narcissus cried, my silver and gold I'll bring. And ere they are dulled, another spoke, the hyacinth bells shall ring, but the violet only murmured, I'm here, and sweet grew the air of spring. Oh, the pretty brave things, through the coldest days, imprisoned in walls of brown, they never lost heart, though the blast shrieked loud, and the sleet and the hail came down. But patiently each wrought her wonderful dress, of fashioned her beautiful crown. And now they are coming to lighten the world, still shadowed by winter's frown. And well may they cheerily laugh, ha ha, in laughter sweet and low, the millions of flowers under the ground, yes, millions beginning to grow. First of all, to uh, Debbie Johnson, wonderful stuff. I love listening to The Hobbit. Uh, it's been on for two weeks now, and we get to hear the next uh, version or the next segment, I guess I should say, uh, next week on Free Range Radio Theater, 10 p.m. every Monday night, just an hour before this program. All right? Okay, thanks for the nice emails. Hello to all of you listening over the web. Thank you to Larry, of course. Uh, the changes with the website, uh, we talked about them a little bit over the last couple weeks, but uh, we're sort of getting it tweaked out. And Larry has done an amazing job, as usual. And he is just this, uh, he's the web wizard. That's what he is. He's the web wizard. And he's doing some fantastic stuff, really cool stuff, as a matter of fact. And live chat, there's a great forum now on the site where people can post stories and have uh, correspondence and communication and debate and discussion about whatever it is they decide to talk about. Uh, like I said, live chat on the front page there. Uh, music archives are getting built. We'll start to... Uh, pretty soon have the uh, 
music that's being featured on the program uh, available on the website as well. And uh, as a matter of fact, the music for the program tonight is from a project that was entitled Journey Through the Spheres, a tribute to Terrence McKenna. And it's brought to you by the good people, past and present, of the novelty group. You know who you are. And I send my greetings to all of you who are listening. And uh, we'll be playing a number of tracks from Journey Through the Spheres uh, tonight. And as a matter of fact, I think I'll give away a copy of that CD as well. So uh, not right now. I think we'll do it uh, during, the, uh, during the interview with Dennis and Stephen, which is a taped interview, by the way. I recorded it uh, just about 13 days ago and uh, airing it tonight. We weren't able to get our schedules uh, all jived where we could do a live show with all three of us. So we uh, settled for this recorded uh, interview, but it's wonderful, and I think you guys will enjoy it. So I hope you stick around and uh, listen to that. Like I said, coming up in about, I don't know, a little, little less than an hour, Dr. Dennis McKenna and Stephen Herod Buner. Okay? All right, as I said, uh, thanks to everybody listening over the web, uh, everybody that's subscribed to the podcast if you're using it. Thank you, and thanks for letting me know that it's working. We've, I think we've got all the bugs worked out of that for the most part. Um, for the people who are subscribing to the podcast, of course, uh, Larry's got some cool free stuff there on the website for you as well. You can get a, um, uh, a Radio Orbit Journey into Space screensaver, this thing that Larry put together with some wonderful imagery from uh, space-type uh, scenarios and space-type photographs. And uh, there's also a free music download on the site right now. If you go uh, over to MikeHagan.com, you can get a copy of the entire CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, by my friends Yachai. And it's a great CD. I think there's uh, 10 or 12 songs on it. And it's wonderful music inspired by Amazonian shamanism. And uh, Jeff and William, those guys really pushing the edge and uh, uh, creating some really interesting sounds with just two uh, two guys in the band. So anyway, if you're interested in that, I've played Yachai a couple times on the program, actually a number of times on the program, and you can get some of their music for free if you hop on the web and go over to MikeHagan.com, and uh, you'll see a link there somewhere that says free music, Yachai, or something like that. Okay? All right, of course, uh, uh, thanks to everybody who's already subscribed and uh, taking advantage of that stuff. Uh, tell your friends about it, okay? We're trying to create a, uh, a mailing list and uh, build a community there at the website now, okay? All right, speaking of that, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm always available. My email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. And the website, of course, www.mikehagan.com. That's M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com. And the number here in the studio, when I decide to give away that CD in a little while here, is area code 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. All right, let's talk a little bit about what's coming up on the show in the next few weeks here, and uh, then we'll get on with things. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have Kent Stedman on with me in a few minutes, too. I think I'm going to call Kent uh, in about 15 minutes, and we'll talk with him a little bit about what's happening in his world. And uh, instead of doing space weather myself, we'll talk with Kent a little bit about what's happening up there in the stars and in the skies above our heads, okay? So, uh, as I said tonight, Dr. Dennis McKenna, 
uh, the wonderful brother of Terence McKenna, an outrageous neurochemist, uh, brilliant biochemist, plant biologist, ethnopharmacologist, and uh, somebody who's just talking about pushing the edge. Uh, Dennis has done a remarkable job uh, over the last four decades, and I'm proud to have him uh, on the program. So Dennis and Stephen Herod Buner tonight. Next week, Dr. Michael Heisen. Anybody who's been listening to the program for any length of time will be familiar with Dr. Heisen, a wonderful marine biologist from the Sirius Institute in Hawaii. We'll talk to Dr. Heisen next week. Uh, the following week, James Kent, an amazing author and psychonaut and the proprietor of uh, Tripzine Magazine on the web, tripzine.com, and involved in lots of interesting projects. We'll have James Kent on the air in two weeks. Uh, let's see, what else? I'm not sure. The 24th is open for now. We'll have to see what we come up with for the 24th of April. And uh, into May, we've got uh, Dr. Alan Goldstein, Professor of Biomaterials and the Chair of Molecular Cell Biology at uh, Alfred University. We'll be talking about nanotechnology and uh, nanobiotechnology. A few other irons in the fire. Uh, but on the 22nd of May, Rian Eisler, the remarkable author of The Chalice and the Blade, I can't wait to have Rihanna on the on the program. She's just wonderful, and uh, that will be a privilege and a pleasure. So, all uh, all that stuff coming up over the next few weeks and months. So, keep coming back and uh, join us. All right. Okay. As I said tonight, I'll give away a copy of Journey Through the Spheres in just a little while, and we'll hear another song from that. Uh, we'll do that right now, I think, and then we'll uh, we'll get Kent on the horn here come back and talk to him for a few minutes, okay? All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Where we really want to be is naked singing in the rainforest, stoned and exalted, one with the souls of the ancestors, one with the Gaian spirit of the planet.
right, that's Vajra from Journey Through the Spheres, a tribute to Terrence McKenna, brought to you by the Novelty Group. All right, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. As I said, we'd come back and do space weather, but we'll do a little bit of a special version tonight uh, because we're going to be joined by my good friend Kent Stedman, the uh, wizard behind cyberspaceorbit.com. We'll see what's happening in uh, the Bard's world here in just a moment and uh, jump over to Seattle. Hello, Kent. What's happening? Oh, a lot of things happening. How are you? Good. Hey, that uh, sound clip, yeah. uh, Terrence? Yes. Uh, that reminds me of something that hasn't been mentioned very often lately. Uh, do you remember the Taos hum? I do remember the Taos hum. A lot of people were reporting Taos. from all across the country, as a matter of fact, were reporting sort of a low, dieseling, almost mechanical-sounding hum, modulated hum from what they thought deep within the earth. They call it the Taos hum, named after the Pueblo of Taos. Yeah, in Ta Taos, New Mexico, T-A-O-S, the spelling for people out there who are wondering what we're talking about. But yeah, the Taos hum, and, there, and you're right, Kent, there were reports from lots of different areas, actually, about, about some, and it was like an oscillating hum or something like that. Yeah, uh, have you ever been to Taos? Uh, I have, yeah. I've, I, I've been I've been there before. I went skiing there a number of years ago when I was living in Colorado. We used to go down to New Mexico once in a while. Did you go to the Pueblo? Uh, no, I didn't get a chance to. I was uh, not in a space uh, at that time in my life where I was uh, interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, it's really uh, magical up there. And, uh, and uh, then west of there is the Apache Res. It's very bizarre, strange, eerie. And uh, some say that the, the, under the Apache Res, the NSA has worked a deal. Hmm. to do a lot of tunneling, so maybe that's where the Taos helmets come from. Interesting, yeah, and what else was there, Kent? There was something else that was that, that was going on underground there. Oh, you know, the Anasazi were there. That's that, that's a, the same area that the Anasazi were living in, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. A really amazing place. I guess the Anasazi around Chaco and Chaco Canyon, yeah. Pueblo Bonito, yeah. really developed quite, a, quite a, an amazing culture, you know, with uh, Pueblo... Bonito, for instance, has uh, roads that can be seen by satellite that that uh, fan out like the spokes of a wheel going for hundreds of miles, centering on Pueblo Bonito and connecting to the other Anasazi uh, city-states. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, they were city-states. You know, it was quite a vast uh, complex with lots and lots of people, in it. and uh, there are all kinds of rumors of. Uh, ancient underground caverns around there too mm -hmm. interests me these underground tunnelways yeah you know we had Richard Souter on the program um, just a few weeks ago yeah. and, and he, he talks uh, uh, at length about that sort of stuff although uh, n nothing really revealing but just verifies more than anything that uh, even in the public record even in the stuff that we do uh, know about you know that there's a there's a uh, a huge amount of this work that's been done and is probably ongoing, and who knows what's going on that we're you know that we're not uh, privy to. Well, they've been uh, running on the uh, Discovery Channel or National Geographic. I can't remember which one, but I've been watching about these underground uh, caverns that are uh, that they're scuba diving because they're mm, filled with seawater. Yeah, uh, and down in the mine. Mm. Kingdoms, and the interesting part is, here these guys suit up and go diving at the great risk to their life because <laughs> the tunnels are uh, complex and uh, uh, 
uh, and then they'll go back, you know, many, many kilometers. And so to explore them is risky. But the thing is, they'll get back in these tunnels with no no air bubbles or anything, just seawater mixed with groundwater, you know, different types of water. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll get back in there like nine kilometers. I was watching this the other night. And, and there's a... And there's a <laughs> a pile of uh, uh, boulders, like an altar with skulls and things, <laughs> human skulls and remains, you know, underwater. Oh my gosh! Nine kilometers away from the uh, from the entrance. So yeah. go figure. <laughs> yeah, it's outrageous. I, there, there have been some uh, some still images, photos of uh, of some of that stuff that have been posted on the web over the last week or so, and I've I've been looking at that stuff too. And I and in fact I sent some of that stuff to John uh, John Jenkins. I want to see what he thought about it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's remarkable what they find in these, uh, not just the underwater ones, but all of these caverns. Ken, I mean, it's just amazing the stuff that's being found. And one of these days, you know, we've got to wake up to the incredible uh, ancient history of North America. Mm. They, you know, we talk about pre-Columbian civilization. We talk about the pyramids all over the planet, Egypt. And, uh, Mexico. Mexico and, and so on. But, yeah. you know... The, one of the, the most wondrous civilization is right where you live. <laughs> in Missouri. Yeah, the Mound City, man. There right. are hundreds of thousands of incredible megalithic structures, mounds, cairns, whatever they were. Right. Including uh, entire cities designed around uh, pyramidal-type mounds. And so one of these days, you know, I don't know why why we sort of avoid the topic here in North America, specifically in regards to our own antiquities, but we do, you know. Well, there's a, there's a mental block for sure because we because we we went on a genocidal uh, rage and and wiped them out. <laughs> <laughs> Dug a lot of them up, plowed them over, and so. Yeah, you know, and built WalMarts on top of them. So. There's definitely a problem with dealing with that, but it's something that eventually will have to uh, be dealt with as a nation, you know, and as a people. We will eventually have to deal with that and come to terms with, you know, our own uh, history. So we talk about the mounds in Ireland and England. And oh my God! They're, yeah. they're spectacular, but by far the most spectacular array of ancient mounds along the East Coast, from Florida up into Canada. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of mega huge. Well, varying size, but some of them are represent the biggest earth-filled pyramids probably in the West. Yeah, and I know in, in, in Wisconsin, I was reading something on your site recently, Wisconsin alone had something like 20,000 identified mounds or cairns. Yeah, in that state alone. Yeah, just in Wisconsin alone. And the, and the more we learn about them, the more we're learning how they're oftentimes not... Uh, uh, they're not laid out in a random fashion. They're organized on the ground, oftentimes representing astronomical configurations or or star charts or this sort of thing. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the 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 huge array of mounds in the East Coast there, uh, they fall under what, what was it, the Ryan. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you plot them all out, many thousands of them, and it's the constellation Orion. It's amazing. Anyway, so much right, well, wow. under the earth. <laughs> yeah, under the earth. What's happening above our heads? Uh, the, well, sun, the sun's see, acting up. you got to go see, folks. So go to cyberspaceorbit.com and just take a looky. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because right. when we talk about what's going on with space weather, 
it's really staggering. The visuals are staggering. Uh, we have a telescope about a million miles out, actually in Earth orbit, but trained upon the sun. It's called the Soho spacecraft, and uh, for some peculiar obsessive reason, I have over the years <laughs> been glued to this uh, cam. Yeah, and you dragged me into the whole deal too. Yeah, sorry, sorry. But uh, uh, what's happened is my whole understanding of astronomy, especially solar astronomy, has totally been nuked. <laughs> because what I learned in my astronomy classes in college has nothing to do with what I'm seeing around the sun. There's an incredible amount of uh, mysterious, anomalous activity. And if you go over and take a look now, you'll see a red, couple of big red details of the solar camera called the C-2 aboard the Soho spacecraft, the Lasco C-2. And there's stuff that there's this huge spark emanating from the the northwest, about one o'clock position of our sun. Mm. I mean, a huge swath. It's amazing. And then it looks like it it connects to another spheroid type ghostly object up in the right hand corner. Now people are been notifying me of this by email and also asking me what is it? Well I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but uh, why do I think of the electrical universe theory when I see something like yeah, a yeah. brilliant arc like uh presence, you know, that's leaping out of the uh top of the sun and then apparently intersecting some dark, serious object north of it. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, as Kent says, get on the web and either go to my site and just click on Kent's link that's right there on my front page or go directly to cyberspaceorbit.com. And Kent is very image-oriented, uh, and you'll find uh, right there at the top of his page, you'll see this image, uh, uh, a recent still photograph from the Soho C2 camera. And... Uh, yeah, you'll, it'll be apparent what we're talking about as soon as you look at it. But uh, Ken will have this up for a few days, too, I'm sure. So uh, people, if you're li listening to this uh, from the archives over the web, uh, go over there as well. Um, because we've seen a lot of this stuff over the years, Kent, strange things like this. This one in particular is... Uh, it's right up there with the top ten. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, just a few days prior to that, there was this other, you'll see it, a sort of rainbow band, looks like the band of a spectrum mm -hmm. hanging to the northeast mm -hmm. of the sun. There, nobody knows what it is. What do, you know, we've had a number of occasions, too, in the past where we've approached NASA scientists and these types of people and said, hey, what's this? What's going on here? They've emailed me. Yeah, I know. You have correspondence with them pretty frequently. Uh, and it's usually the same story, though. What do we usually get from them? Well, in, in fact, early on in the uh, SOHO mission, uh, say, 97 and 98, they were really busily collecting these images, too. Some some are kind of fuzzy around the edges. Some are sharp and distinct. And they say the the sharp, distinct ones, because of the uh, way the camera works, it's a... Uh, depth of focus is set at infinity, so the sharp, mm. distinct images would be way out there away from the spacecraft, whereas the more fuzzy ones, you'll see an example of each kind on my site right now, the, the fuzzy ones might be closer to the spacecraft and thus out of focus because the focal length is set on infinity. Right, right, right. But uh, they listed them under the cat category of debris. They're not making any bones about it. They don't call it necessarily a particle strike, although we've seen lots of particle strikes. Right. 
Well, this thing that we're looking at right now, that, that, that's completely outside of the realm of that explanation. They're calling it debris. This, what we're looking at? The one that we're talking about with this giant uh, extension out from the top of the sun? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. Anyway, uh, take a look at it yourself, people. And uh, now, also while you're there, there are other. Uh, I've, I've posted some of the movies uh, in relationship to this, these images, and so you can see them as they appear. As usually a single frame, so they're transient. They're just transient. They just appear over, uh, happen to be caught over a, a frame, which is like about 15 minutes apart. Right, right. Every 15 minutes they shoot them. Yeah. And uh, but also while you're there, go. There's a link nearby that goes to the Swan imaging camera, which is a deep space wide swath of picture of the sun. And, it's, and uh, there's just an incredible amount of debris, dust, molecular dust, as well as atomic material, hydrogen that's glowing hmm. in and around the vicinity of the sun, and it's more intensified than I've ever yet seen. And uh, Spacecom and other more formal astronomical sites have been alerting us now for, you know, a couple of years that uh, indeed a lot of galactic dust. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, the sun and its planets are moving through an arm, apparently, that includes, of the galaxy, that includes a, a denser, dustier environment. And in fact, you know, this concept has led some scholars. Especially, uh, uh, what's the name of the Russian guy? I can't. Uh, Planeto Physical State. Ah, yeah, uh, Dmitriev. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, led them to to speculate rather soundly that it's going to change the space weather, which is what we we're going to talk about in the first place. Right. Well, here I'll I'll tell you. Here here's my take on it on on the, on the thing I'm looking at on your website. Right. Uh -huh. This is my scientific take, by the way. The date on that frame is April third. 2006, 02:30 hours. That's that, that's 2:30 a.m. Universal Time, Greenwich Mean Time. I think that's what I think that's the timestamp that they put on those. So now I access my uh, long-term memory, and I will uh, tell you that on April 3rd of 2000, of course that's part of what's happening on the program tonight at 2:15 a.m. Pacific Time. Uh, Terence McKenna joined the ancestors. <laughs> and uh, when was that? Two fifteen. Two fifteen a.m. Uh, on April third, six years ago. Now I had a remarkable night last night too, and uh, we're not going to talk about it much right now. But I'm I can't wait to hear about that. Well, I'm telling you, Kent, something happened last night, and uh, and I'm telling the world that too. Uh, I'm not afraid to talk about it, but I'll tell you, something happened last night, and it was a freaking miracle, and we're going to find out how it pans out, but. Uh, last night was a very special night for me and for hopefully a lot of other people. So, anyway, Terrence, my man, and who knows what's happening with the sun right now, Ken? Oh, uh, I might quickly mention that on 3:30, March 30th, we ah. had another object. Uh, what you can call it, what you want—a comet, a Kreutz comet, or a sun grazer—barreling in. I could call it incoming, which means it's incoming in, in the direction of the sun. So another distinct object entity moving in toward the sun. I call them solar torpedoes because I don't accept some of the mainstream theory on this. It's just puzzling to me why these objects always move in from the south of the sun mm. in the 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock position. Yep. And the yep. model 
the Crutes model, which is, ah, we won't go into it, but it's about a comet exploding sometime during the time of ancient Greece and leaving a debris field hanging somewhere south of the sun, which I don't understand because I don't understand how it orbits and such that we see these amazing events taking place. Uh, objects, sometimes one of them, sometimes two of them, line of stern flying in the direction of the sun hmm. as perceived within the rather limited range of the SOHO spacecraft. Right. And uh, that's an amazing thing to me. And also there's a paper that I'll quickly mention about uh, a massive knot of comets or a massive comet called CR-105 that has been presented by a group rather academically and amazingly with sophisticated astronomical uh, calculation. Right, right. That there, there's, a, there's a Japanese woman, I think, that's involved with that. I forget the other guy, but I know there's a... Sonia Kawamoto or something like that is her name. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Comet Vulcan or the Comet of Vulcan, they're calling it, right? Well, they're thinking that there's, there have been a lot of different people over the years speculating that our sun is not solitary. In fact, it's mm-hmm. more like our solar system is more like the others in that our sun has a binary twin, right, which, right. which is the rule rather than the exception. Right. We've talked about we we've talked with Walter Cruttenden, the guy that wrote. Uh, uh, lost star of myth and time about the deals with that exact idea that, that possibly we're part of a binary system. And uh, the, the, this binary companion has been called various names. It's been called Nemesis, and mm-hmm. also uh, tagged as quote unquote Vulcan, U L C A N. But uh, you know, when you see a binary star system through the uh, Hubble telescope, for instance, you very often see a plasma. Uh, a tether that passes between the sun and the big sun and the smaller sun, usually a large red, a large sun similar to our own, and then a, a, like a brown dwarf, right, right, red dwarf mm-hmm, in mutual orbit around it. And you'll see these this this passage of plasma going back and forth like an umbilical cord between the two mm-hmm. entities. Now, if we had, live in a binary system, it might explain some of this stuff we're seeing on. Soho in the mm. fact that there's a plasma interchange going back and forth between, between our sun two and its binary companion, right? And now they're talking about this comet Wasserman, uh, which is a destroyed comet. It'll be the, starting to appear in our area in May. Yeah, Ted, let me let me read the first uh, paragraph of this abstract, okay? Yeah, and and this, this is really interesting. It it is uh, definitely a professional paper. And uh, it's titled CR-105, Comet of Vulcan, Astronomical Verification of Vulcan's Period by Dr. Herbert Kuhn and Barry Warmkessel and Sonia M. Kawamoto, Jane Yin. Uh, Listen to this. We're pretty short here. Others, including mainline astronomical investigators, have contended that our sun has a companion brown dwarf companion star. We do likewise based on multi-source data, and we call it Vulcan. Until now... Only circumstantial evidence ranging from newspaper articles to ancient artifacts and even to postulated communications with extraterrestrial aliens have cited support for this thesis. Our investigations have even led to Vulcan's orbital orbital parameters and modeled comet swarms forming a three to two resonant period. Now the computation of giant comet CR-105's average orbital period has made it statistically certain that it is in just such a resonance with Vulcan. This is tantamount to the discovery of Vulcan itself. 
That's the way it starts. Astounding. Amazing. And it goes and it's very and I mean, they, they, it goes on they, for a hundred pages or something. Yeah, it's very sound astronomical uh what are, what, material with 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 precise calculations, but it also it does what you know, you really hope that the scientific community will allow itself to do more often and that's to to expand out into mythology and so on. Well there you know, there there's there's quite a bit of uh Interest in that area seems to be coming, uh, c coming back. But boy, it's a it's a, it's a tough sell in many cases. But this, uh, the, this particular paper, I'd like to see uh, what some of the uh, orthodox people have to say about this because it is presented in a in a fashion that's very professional. Ken, amazing. Okay, another that's another one. Get on the web again, cyberspaceorbit.com, and uh, it's just a, a hair down on the front page and. Right below the uh, links that say solar torpedoes that we've been talking about for the last few minutes, there's a link that says CR-105, Comet of Vulcan. That's the link that you want if you want to read this. And uh, I'll put a link up on my site, too, Kent, to that one. That, that's a really interesting one. So, anyway, all right, well, look, what else? Uh, well, that's what's happening uh, cosmically. Now, when I, you know, I'm crazy old coot <laughs> that with my background in the creative arts, that I, I like to expand a lot of diff into a lot of different areas, and uh, uh, we have a lot of really weird political things happening right now. And speaking of crazy old coots, <laughs> <laughs> there's this uh, biologist. Oh, yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> a population reduction biologist. Yeah, that's nice. Eric Pianca, out of the University of Texas, who's you know, he's saying things like he's giving formal academic lectures to his peers, saying that that we'd be better off with 90% of the human population dead. He's talking about saving the earth with the Ebola virus and so on, and he's getting standing ovations amongst his peers. And it's, you know, I'm, you know, I now regard myself as totally, totally conservative and sane <laughs> in the presence of this guy. Yeah, here it is right here. A population reduction, Texas style. A University of Texas professor, Eric Pianca, says the Earth would be better off with 90% of the human population dead. Meeting Dr. Doom, there's an article here. Uh, yeah, and he mentions that saving the world with Ebola. This is great. They want to infect 90% uh, of the population with Ebola uh, and kill 5 billion human beings. Uh, and, and, you know, if they want to kill 5 billion people, what, you know, why don't we... At least give me just to OD a heroin or something. You know what I mean? Why do I have to bleed uh, to death uh, internally and, and externally, you know, and just melt away from the Ebola virus? Why can't I just have some morphine or something? These assholes, unbelievable. Anyway, brilliant, brilliant so doctor. That's a, that's, you know, <laughs> Thanks a lot, Doctor Bianca. Politics. I didn't really get involved in politics. I was more interested in like the solar stuff and the sort of amazing thing of our of our cosmic environment of it. And nine eleven, this guy called me up and said, Oh, hell's breaking loose back in New York City and I've got a live uh connection to the news which is hard to get because a lot of the towers were on top of the WTC. Mm. And so from that point on, you know, I became really political in the fact that I be began to uh, watch we set up, remember, we set up a command center and began to watch oh, all the bolts uh, oh, yeah. formally over about a year, and yeah. it's still going on. 
That's and, something, you know, that's something that's about to break open too. I have a feeling, Kent. Well, just today, you know, uh, there are more and more sophisticated type of people uh, coming out and feeling safe or free to say something. Now, the former head of the Star Wars program says Cheney was the main, is the main 9-11 suspect. Hmm. Well, him and Rumsfeld, in my book, are certainly people that I would like to have a discussion with. Please leave it that. Uh, and, uh, you know, may the truth be told. And may the light of day shine on these clowns. Because Mama's home, Kent, that was one of the messages that came through last night. I'll tell you that. Mother is home. <laughs> oh, and here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Yeah, no kidding. And here's an interesting thing. There's a, I put a link to a... Uh, website that says how to stop time how to stop time <laughs> cool. it's got a little clock on the website that tells you what to do and i've tried it with my mechanical pocket watches too it tells you what to do to stop the second hand <laughs> from moving <laughs> with your mind you know and well i've known for quite a long time that the the, the tiktok time is one thing and uh, uh Psychological time is something quite else. How to stop time? Here it is, right here. Yeah. Now you ought to go try that. It's a trip. It works. <laughs> Grasshopper.com. Mind games. How to you stop time? You watch the second hand go round and round and round, and then you kind of look ahead, fifteen minutes mm -hmm. or fifteen seconds ahead, and you rather relax and put yourself in a mellow frame of mind. And as we all know, time seems to go much. Uh, uh, the more uh, your psychological state and your uh, state of focus uh, has a lot to do with the, with the warping of time. Well, yeah, yeah. in this case, you can see it having a second hand stops, unless it's some sort of cheap trick. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, yeah. I'm but you know, I've had people contact me. Uh, look, look at a link I got here called the Worldwide Periodical Time Shift. This is a guy, a German, that collects watches in in a traditional German fashion. He collects hundreds and hundreds of watches, and he was reporting several years ago that his watches were all changing their period of time. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I remember that too. That was back in 2002, and uh, and and I'm actually looking at it now. I'm I'm there on the website again, and I love you've got the you've got that Dada. Or, or it's a dolly painting, actually. Yeah, a Salvador know. dolly painting of that stopwatch that sort of melted over the edge of that cube. I love it. You know I've been obsessively collecting stopwatches. I have no I idea why. Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's a story in there somewhere. I don't know. All right, Bartle, look, we've got, uh, I'm getting toward the top of the hour here. i got a few things i got to take care of. So. Uh, well, it's great, as usual. Yeah, thanks for everything. And I can't wait to talk to you about your experience the other night. Yeah, I'll talk to you about it, and and, and I'll decide. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see what the future brings. We, you know how how we present that to the to the audience because it's something that uh, that should probably be shared at some point. But I need to sort of reconcile a few things. What was the weather like during the? I want to ask you about the experience, but real quickly. What well, I mean, it was a, uh, an outrageous storm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it was a storm like. Uh, and it's very strange, you know, where I live, I live in a, a town called Rocheport, and we're about 10 miles west of Columbia. And for the last two weeks, the big storms have been out there. They haven't been here in Columbia. They've been right over my house. 
They've been right over where we live in this particular area, and there have been hail storms and wild storms. Well, last night at about 10 o'clock uh, is when this whole thing began, and it was sort of simultaneous with the, the thing that I uh, went through, but, or, or, or synch synchronistic or something. But anyway, uh, it, 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 it got absolutely wild, where the wind was blowing and you know, rain and lightning and thunder and just the whole, the whole deal. But it was an outrageous storm, but it was beautiful. You know, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was. It was. It was awesome. Well, we'll have to talk about that. It sounds incredible. Yeah, man. I, yeah, that's a whole deal. So, all right. Well, look. Uh, thanks as always. I love you, buddy. And uh, everybody, take a look at uh, Kent's work and his website at www.cyberspaceorbit.com. He's been doing amazing work for many, many years, and it's been a great ten years now. Yeah, ten years, and it's been a great. Uh, friend and mentor uh, to me and I love you Ken and I and I love your family and I hope that everyone's doing well how's your grandson uh, he's just great a little <laughs> tyke six months old and I would you know all my kids are left for college and I was having this terrible uh, empty nesting and <laughs> boing here comes along with little baby Quentin he's my pal now he's six months old and we see eye to eye and a lot of things already that's awesome <laughs> well that's what it's about it's about these children and about uh straightening things out for the children so so i appreciate everything that you do toward that but all right everybody that's it kent i'll talk to you soon later love you bye all right everybody kent stedman www.cyberspaceorbit.com this is mike you're listening to radio orbit it's kopn columbia we'll take a quick break here and pretend it's the top of the hour close enough and come back in just a few minutes i got a few news stories to read to you and then we will uh, say uh, hello to dennis mckenna and Stephen Herod Buner. All right, this is another song from Journey Through the Spheres. This one is called Earth Spirit. Check this out. It's not, as Milton said, the God who hung the stars like lamps in heaven, but it's the God of the oceans and the jungles and the ice caps and the rivers and the glaciers and the great schools of fish and the deserts. And it's the goddess of the earth. It's the mind of organic life on this planet.
great news that all shamanism can attest to and is built on is the news that there is a sentient, minded, caring entity that surrounds and holds the planet in its hands, in its heart. Call it Gaia, call it God, call it the spirit of nature. It doesn't matter what you call it. It transcends the rational apprehension of higher primates. Journey Through the Spheres, and this is Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit. All right, let's do a few news stories here, and then we'll get to our interview with Dr. Dennis McKenna and Stephen Herod Buner. All right, check this out. Brain cells fused with computer chip. The line between living organisms and machines has just become a whole lot blurrier. Actually, the correct English should be more blurry. Uh... European researchers have developed neurochips in which living brain cells and silicon circuits are coupled together. The achievement could one day enable the creation of sophisticated neural prostheses to treat neurological disorders or the development of organic computers that crunch numbers using living neurons. To create the neurochip, researchers squeezed more than 16,000 electronic transistors and hundreds of capacitors onto a silicon chip just one millimeter square in size. They use special proteins found in the brain to glue the brain cells called neurons onto the chip. However, the proteins acted as more than just a simple adhesive. They also provided the link between ionic channels of the neurons and semiconductor material in a way that neural electrical signals could be passed to the silicon chip. The study team member Stefan Vassinelli from the University uh, of Padua in Italy said. Okay, so now we're... Uh, fusing brain cells with chips, with computer chips, and not only are they fusing them, they've actually got it to there's uh, to the point where there's a situation of interaction between the two. Fascinating. I wonder what that means. Hmm. You know, I've you know fascinated by the technological revolution that's you know been happening for the last 200 years, but for the last you know 50 years has gone uh, vertical, and now we're just in this absolute uh, ascent of the curve if you look at these things mathematically and uh... i've actually had a revelation recently regarding technology and uh... thanks to my ipod believe it or not and to steve jobs and the people over there at apple so thanks uh... you know it is a this this ipod it's a remarkable device even though at the same time it's just a simple extension of 
an earlier idea. You know, the Walkman, of course. So what's the big deal? Well, there's no big deal if you use your iPod in the manner which is uh, most popular, you know, in the, the traditional method of using it. In other words, you use it to play Britney Spears or Kanye West or whatever, uh, and you basically use it to prop up and reinforce the cultural stereotypes that already exist. It's just an extension of that. So if you utilize it in that manner, no, it's no big deal. Um, but if you decide to get creative with your iPod, then it becomes a very big deal because you can turn it from a glorified Walkman into a, a, a trans-dimensional communication device. You know? I mean, how, how so? Well, you, uh, along with your entire music collection, what else can you listen to? Hmm. How about old Terrence McKenna talks? How about Eisenhower's farewell address? Maybe Jesus Christ Superstar. Maybe Radio Orbit archives. Maybe Macbeth. Maybe Sweeney Todd. Maybe Studs Terkel. Anything. You can have anything else, that anything you can find on audio, including books, etc. And now video as well with these new, uh, these new little devices. And they can hold 40, 60, 80 gigabytes of data. I mean, it's, it's everything that you have on your computer, most likely, including all of your music. So the iPod and technology in general, if it's not trivialized, if it's not trivialized, if it's recognized uh, for the powerful tool that it is, well, then it can be a great benefit. I mean, everybody talks about how they don't have any time. M most of the arguments for people... Uh, including family members and friends of mine who don't listen to my radio program. And I say, why don't you listen to my show? Well, the number one answer is usually, well, I just don't have the time. Well, you know, this is a solution to that for many people. You can, you can use these new musical angels on the train, in the car, uh, at work in many cases, as long as your boss isn't a control freak or jerk. You know, so you can listen to whatever you like. You can put them on when you go to bed and uh, listen all night if you like. But anyway, wonderful stuff, and uh, the technology always walks down a two-way street. You know, it's easy to um, demonize it, but it's part of the world that we live in. Technology is nothing more than an expression of humanity, of human nature. We are nature you know even though the vast majority of the people walking around on this planet don't think they are we are nature we are from the earth and we are made of the same stuff of the earth and technology is something that we did with our hands and so technology itself is by definition an extension of the natural world all of technology comes from the earth too all of it all of the metals all the glasses all the ceramics all the minerals all the funky little uh, strange elements that uh, are required to make your cell phone work they all come from the earth and this is uh, something that's going to be made self-evident very soon I have a feeling anyway I love my iPod 
All right, check this other one out here. The Inuit see signs in Arctic thaw. String of warm winters alarms sentries for the rest of the world. This is from Canada. 30 miles from the Arctic Circle, hunter Noah Matuk feels the Arctic changing. Its frozen grip is loosening. The people and animals who depend on its icy rain are experiencing a historic reshaping of their world. Fish and wildlife are following the retreating ice caps northward. Polar bears are losing the flows they need for hunting. Seals, unable to find stable ice, are hauling up on the islands to give birth. Robins and barn owls and hornets, previously unknown so far north, are arriving in Arctic villages. The global warming felt by wildlife and increasingly documented by scientists is hitting first and hardest here, in the Arctic, where Inuit people make their home. The hardy Inuit, described by one of their leaders as sentries for the rest of the world, say this winter was the worst in a series of warm winters, replete with alarms of quickening transformation that many scientists expect will spread from the north to the rest of the globe. These are things that all of our old oral history has never mentioned said Inosik Nashalik, 87, the eldest of the male elders in, the, in this Inuit village. We cannot pass on our traditional knowledge because it is no longer reliable. Before I could look at the cloud patterns or the wind or even what the stars were doing and how they were twinkling, and I could predict the weather. Now everything has changed. So more signs of change in the Arctic. And uh, global warming, as I've said many times, is a, is, is a misstatement a misrepresentation. Uh, global climate change, maybe that's a better representation because there are parts of the planet that are cooling off and there are parts of the planet that are warming up. The thing is that the thing is in flux. It's a, uh, a dynamic situation that is really in flux right now and there's just a lot of change going on. And it's uh, impossible uh, to, uh, to try to come up with some single cause for what's happening. Nobody knows what's happening. Maybe it's the sun. Maybe it's, uh, uh, maybe it's the internal energy generated from the earth. Maybe, maybe uh, human endeavors are involved in it. Who knows? Uh, but people that think that, uh, that they've got the, the silver bullet with their fancy ideas of, uh, well, if we all stop driving our cars all of a sudden, that it's just going to solve all the problems. This is just silliness. I mean, it's an amazingly dynamic and complex situation, and nobody knows what's going on. So the idea that anybody has any, any concept of how to solve it is absolute lunacy. It's preposterous. It's just another one of these ego trips of, you know, modelers, uh, scientists and their models, you know, their precious models. Their models aren't worth, the, you know, the air that, uh, that just left my lungs. Anyway, who knows what's happening, but things are getting interesting. All right, one more for you here. Wonderful story. It's called Art Transplant. This is from the Daily Mail in, uh, in the UK. William Sheridan's drawing skills were stuck at nursery level. His stick figures were the sort you would expect of a child. But as he convalesced after a heart transplant operation, he, is, he experienced an astonishing revelation. Suddenly he was blessed with an artistic talent he simply did not recognize, producing beautiful drawings of wildlife and landscapes, he was even more amazed when he discovered that he now believes what he now believes to be the explanation. The man who donated his heart was a keen artist. Last night, Mr. Sheridan, 63, was being hailed as the latest example of a phenomenon which sounds like science fiction, but which is intriguing uh, to a growing number of medical experts. That is, 
that it's possible during an organ transplant to inherit character traits from the donor. Again, a real, um, a lot more to that story as well. Uh, and you can read that on the web. All these stories that I've been talking about tonight, you can get on the web, go over to MikeHagan.com and uh, click on the news tab and you can see the stories and uh, the links to the original source articles and then you can read them in their entirety. Okay? All right, so uh, let's uh, play one more short piece of music here. This is called The Call of the Jungle Brew. And uh, then we will come back and get things going with our interview with Dr. Dennis McKenna and Stephen Herod Buner. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit back in just a few minutes.
right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. My first guest is an author, a deep ecologist, he's a poet, a master brewer of beer, he's a gentleman who is as comfortable discussing the works of Goethe as he is discussing Lyme disease, he's a brilliant herbalist, he's an artist, and his name is Stephen Herod Buner. He's been on the program once before, and we welcome him back. My second guest, also returning to the program, is a world-renowned ethnopharmacologist. He's a brilliant biochemist and neurochemist. He's the author of amazing books and innumerable professional publications. And he is, in my opinion, a shaman of the highest order. He is just back from Peru. His name is Dr. Dennis McKenna. It is the day after St. Patrick's Day, and I would consider myself extremely fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to either of these gentlemen alone, but uh, the luck of the Irish is with us today, and we are fortunate enough to have them both together to share their thoughts and experiences with us, and uh, it is a, a true privilege and a gift. So uh, from my heart, both of you guys, Dennis and Stephen, thanks so much for being back on the program, and, and welcome. No, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here again. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, these three-way conversations are a little bit tricky sometimes, so uh, at least as we get going here to begin with, I'm just going to ask both of you uh, right off the bat, uh, what's been up lately? Stephen, uh, we haven't spoken for about a year. Dennis, same, uh, same with you. I know you've both been very busy in the meantime. So, uh, so Stephen, maybe you first. Why don't you give us a little update about uh, what's going on in your world? Well, uh, a couple of things that in just terms of my own research and stuff I've been working on that's been fun for me. I've been really interested in emerging diseases for a long time because, you know, they're kind of freaky and I think they're really <laughs> interesting. And, and then I like really watching how emerging diseases move through human populations and how plant populations begin to follow those along. So that's one of the things I've been working on. And uh, the second one is I've become really intrigued by how different ego states, like in the developmental stages that human beings have, like the nine-month-old infant or the two-year-old or the four-year-old, that each of those developmental stages, there's a particular ego state that goes along with them. And then learning how to uh, affect or put energy into one of those ego states and let it kind of come forward so that you see the world through that part. Each one of those developmental stages has particular gifts and strengths hmm. which and the certain perceptual strengths and uniquenesses to it and so I'm working a lot with correlating that to a lot of work in other mystical traditions and indigenous cultures and just the way perception of plant communications, hmm. for instance, is facilitated by particular ego states more than others. Wow, fascinating! I'm I, I'm I'm living it in real time. I have a two-year-old son. No, that's <laughs> a great way to learn about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm learning about the ego development and all that. Trust me, it's very uh, very interesting and very enlightening, as a matter of fact. So, uh, uh, Dennis, how about you? What's what's the latest? I know you're recently just back from Peru. Yes. Uh, well. Uh, Yes, I've been away in Peru for five weeks, and I just got back about a week ago. And uh, what I'm doing down there, I actually don't know if we discussed it previously on the program, but I have a grant from a private foundation uh, to investigate Amazonian traditional medicines, potentially for uh, new compounds to treat uh, schizophrenia. Hmm. And so 
you know, this is really classic ethnopharmacology in, in the sense that it combines, uh, you know, looking at literature, looking at what's known about some of these plants with uh, interviews with traditional healers and trying to tie together a number of threads to identify plants that, you know, are, are not so well known in terms of their chemistry, but have a, a pretty good uh, folk record of being used uh, to treat these kinds of things. And um, so, you know, through that process, we've identified about 250 species um, that we're trying to get our hands on. And so far, we've gotten about half that number. So we'll be, I mean, we're not really expecting to get all of them. So I was down there basically on the second phase of this project um, and uh, did some more collecting. Uh, interestingly, when, when, you, when you go down to South America to do this type of field work, you find that you spend as much time as in government offices <laughs> trying to get permits and get the bureaucracy under control as you do in the jungle. And so, you know, we've had, we've been trying to be very uh, sort of straightforward and, and honest about all these intellectual property issues and, and you know, right. trying to export these things and that's a process that's been going on for the last couple of years finally this time uh they seem to have, we seem to have worn them down basically <laughs> so they finally decided to release all the specimens that we've had in storage for a couple wow. of years so i'm very happy we've got two big boxes of collections on the way uh if they're not intercepted in some way. We'll have a lot to sort out in the lab wow. in about a week or so when they get here. Remarkable. So that that's what I've been doing, wow, hanging that's... out in the jungle a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Big news, though. That's great news that uh, that they released your your uh, your samples, your specimens. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, good. Being and very and frustrating. I imagine, but it sounds like you've had you had. I mean, 125. Even though maybe it was half of what you were looking to collect, it seems at least to me it seems like a lot it seems wonderful because knowing the power of some of these things if you have 125 of them maybe there's 125 miracles there or something well i doubt that but we've settled for one you know <laughs> That's right. out of the pool if we come up with just one new compound that looks that looks interesting i think we'll be happy All right. well well steven you know this is, relates directly to your work of course as well because you know steven comes from a long line of healers and and uh of course, his interest in uh, emerging diseases and the things that he brings up originally certainly must be related uh, to this work. What do you guys think about about the connections between Dennis's work and Stephen, uh, your work in emerging diseases and trying to come up with solutions for some of these things? Well, it's interesting. You know, Dennis uh, actually uh, his first book that he wrote with Terence, uh, "The Invisible Landscape." Mm -hmm. I got a copy of that back in 1979. Right. And, when I was working on my degree in transcultural epistemology and basically looking at the shaman as an archetype for human contact with the sacred in uh, 
I wrote him a letter, and he was really nice. He wrote me back this long letter, and so it's kind of neat to be able to talk to him today. <laughs> that, was a, that was in the era when we had time to write long time letters. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we were both just babies back then. Right. Well, it's yeah. funny, you guys, because I, I told Dennis uh, off the air that it's sort of a closing of a circle because uh, I was familiar with, with Dennis's material as well and had read Invisible Landscape and lots of other uh, things that he had done and, and, and things that Terrence had done, but uh, not until I had spoken uh, to Dennis last year did he uh, was I familiar with you Stephen he introduced me to you and uh, told me that he thought that you were doing wonderful work and that's when I went out and got uh, uh, the lost language of plants uh, which was a stunner to me and uh, and then went on to read uh, the secret teachings of plants and uh, and then got in touch with you and then we talked so it's wonderful to have, oh, that's uh, to great. have you guys that's together really yes the the work of Stevens that I'm familiar with mostly is The Lost Language of Plants, mm. which I think is a wonderful book. And uh, I, I, in a way, it's the book that I've wanted to write for a long time. I, he very beautifully explains the way that, you know, these, these ecological systems uh, Involving plants and everything else in the in the ecosystem are so carefully regulated by by plant chemistry, mm. and uh, you know that's a message that people sort of overlook or are not really aware of. You know the question in classes I teach come up. You know why do plants make all of this chemistry? Why do they? Why do you find this chemical diversity in nature? And the answer is that, you know, the, they don't just spin these things off for the fun of it. They have important roles in regulating the, the, uh, the ecosystem. And, uh, you know, Stephen explains that very beautifully and very poetically. And I really, uh, I really appreciate his contribution in that book. It's required reading in all my classes. Great. Um, Thanks, Dennis. Yeah, Steve, maybe you can riff on that for a minute because uh, I think it's something that does deserve more uh, discussion and clarification and we can always make it uh, more clear of this uh, this deep connection. Uh, Dennis, you once told me, I think, that, that plants substitute, I think you called it biosynthesis for behavior. Right, plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior. And, Stephen, what, what, what do you make of that sort of a statement? Well, I mean, plants are are really intriguing and and I suppose you know one of the things that strikes me the most as I age I'm 53 now and what Dennis you're 55 I guess mm -hmm. and is is how incredibly stupid I've been <laughs> so much of my life or ignorant might be a better word but you know I mean it's just like I still get caught up in realizing how anthropocentric I am mm -hmm. I mean Right. You know, it's like I remember walking along and then the first time I was shocked at the realization that plants have been making these kind of chemicals for millions of years and we've, we're, you know, for like 170 million years, some of them, and we're, you know, I'm like, gee, I wonder what those, they did, those medicines did before we showed up. Isn't that amazing, <laughs> you know? Right. You know, that, and, that's the question. You know, and then, and then, you know, one of the things that, um, is just really, fascinating to me. For instance, like pine pollen is extremely high in testosterone. Really? It's the exact same chemical that's in our bodies. And then pines have been around for, you know, hundreds of millions of years, a long time. 
And but we've got this whole thing about human men and testosterone that you know that's been out there for a long time, and that mm. plants make neurochemicals, and they've been making them a lot longer than we've been using them in our brains. And mm-hmm. and slowly, what I have started to understand very deeply as I re-inhabit my inner being with the world, as John Seed calls it, is that we're only a specific instance of a macrocosmic kind of phenomenon that everything has intelligence. I mean, you think about it, every organism has to identify things that are coming into its system that touch it, and they have to identify what it is and how to use it and how to respond to it. And Mm. so, you know, just like Pythagoras said all those years ago, he says, everything's intelligent. And so we kind of come out of this ecological environmental soup. We are expressed for an ecological reason and of course all of these things that have been going on all along have impacts on us I mean we're made up of the same substance Mm so as I become more and more immersed in the world and I start to see myself as just a localized expression of a general phenomenon that kind of anthropocentrism disappears Mm -hmm. and also at the same time I can see you know, I mean, Dennis has got a long-standing interest in schizophrenia, and I do as well. And I worked at it more as a psychotherapist from that angle of it, and then working with deep relationship with people with the earth and helping resolve schizophrenic structures through that. But seeing how all of this stuff is interrelated, I mean, it's really interesting to me. I look at schizophrenia as an ecological expression more than anything else. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Uh, that's right. There, there are many things that Stephen brought up that, uh, you know, that spark comment and and it could be talked about. But I think, you know, the point that he makes that, you know, we're all made of the same stuff. You know, plants, animals, everything in the environment. You know, uh, on the chemical level, we're all made of the same stuff. And the fact that plants have neurochemicals in them is in some ways remarkable but in other ways is to be expected but you know plants i mean this this notion that plants mediate their relationships to the environment through biosynthesis rather than behavior you know is an expression of that plants these molecules this chemical diversity that you find in the plant kingdom is really these things are messengers. These, this is how they communicate. Mm. Uh, you know, I think this is one reason why in graduate school you, you get a disproportionate number of people study zoology and very, relatively few people study botany because, you know, uh, there's a widespread perception that plants don't do anything. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there is. You know, they just sort of sit there. They sit there. I mean, you know, Larry Niven's favorite statement, you know, how much intelligence does it take to sneak up on a carrot? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Vegetarians are really dumb. You know, carnivores have to be really smart. Oh, right. Yeah, you know, but, but the, a- animals mediate their, you know, animals behave and right. plants biosynthesize, but, uh, you know, on the surface they don't seem to be mm. doing that much, but inside this there's a lot going on yeah, on a sure. chemical level, and because of photosynthesis, you know, which is the trick that plants have have mastered that uh, nothing else has, you know, they're able to do that. 
you know, as Stephen points out so well in his chapter on this in his book, All Plants Are Chemists, you know, it's a great chapter. And, uh, you know, as, as I, I, another point I, I like to make to my ethnopharmacology class is the, this notion that, you know, the very neurotransmitters that, uh, you know, are in our brain that mediate what we think of as the higher functions, you know, cognition and the symbol forming capacity, and this kind of thing. I mean, they're basically the uh, the monoamine neurotransmitters, things like serotonin, right, dopamine, right. norepinephrine, and so on. Mm-hmm. Those things come from what we call the essential amino acids, and, and the reason the uh, the reason they're called essential amino acids is you have to get them from your diet. Hmm. So, in other words, you have to consume plants. We cannot synthesize these essential amino acids which are the precursors for these neurotransmitters we have to get them from dietary sources and that's either from eating animals which have them or directly from plants but ultimately those neurotransmitter chemicals come from plants so in a sense you know we're made of the you know our uh, the compounds that mediate consciousness are are plant products you know, I mean, we're made of these of these compounds, which, if we encounter them in the ecology, would we'd identify them as drugs? Hmm. And in fact, they are drugs. Right. You know, we are made of drugs. So, you know, we can just abandon the notion of the drug-free America because <laughs> you know, organisms themselves are made out of out of drugs. Right, and some which are, are are really interesting, as a matter of fact, too. I mean, that, that certainly the DMT dimethyltryptamine uh, compound comes directly to mind, and you know we've spoken about it before. But it's in human metabolism; it exists within our system, and and yet it's a Schedule One, uh, uh, Schedule One drug, at least uh, classified right, but that that's way. That's a that's a political classification that mm. has nothing to do with. You know, it's it's actual place in nature. Right. You know, the the example of DMT is interesting because it's interesting that it's you know so widely distributed in nature. But on the one hand, that's you know, in a way, it's not surprising. What's interesting to me about something like DMT is it's two steps from tryptophan, hmm. two trivial enzymatic steps. So, in other words. You know, tryptophan is one of these essential amino acids. It's one of the 20 amino acids that goes up to make a protein. So right. tryptophan is in all organisms. We haven't found one yet that doesn't have it. And if we did, it would be very unusual. By two very simple modifications, tryptophan can be converted to DMT in two steps. Uh, you know, I don't know what that says about hmm. nature. Maybe nothing, but maybe it does. Maybe you can read into that fact something about the intelligence that's inherent in nature. I mean, is is there a message here? I don't know. You know, Stephen, let me ask you a question about something that's uh, it's a little little more esoteric and not as scientific. I have. Uh, I had this experience years ago when I was living in Colorado, and we we had this vine that grew on our deck. And it had these big leaves, and in the morning, when the sun came up, the leaves would 
would look toward the sun. And then as the sun moved, it did this all day. And, and I, it turned out I learned about it. It's called heliotropism, they call it. Right. And, and it's this turning toward the sun. But I was, you know, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff back then. But by my initial intuition was that plant knows where the sun is. It, it, I mean, it's obvious. It's, it, there was an intelligence of sorts there. Oh, it's not of sorts. It's, they're an extremely keen intelligence in plants. And, you know, I mean, some of the things... You know, Goethe would say stuff that's like, we, we discover so much only because we've forgotten so much, you know. And, and I look back in, like, Jagadis Bose's research from the uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, and in his examination of the nervous system of plants, he found that plant nervous systems are, in some instances, as sophisticated and rapid as ours, and in many instances, approach ours. And so, to me... You know, and he found ways to measure that and look at it, and that plants have a lot more movement than they're credited with having and a lot more sophisticated nervous response. It's just it's not in a form that we're used to seeing. And so, of course, it makes perfect sense to me that they make neurotransmitters, not just for all of the other reasons neurotransmitters can be used for in the plant kingdom, but also for their particular nervous system functions. And... Then I start looking at, um, of course, these more entheogenic substances that are present in the plant kingdom and move throughout plant ecosystems at various rates. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as so incredibly unique with our intelligence, our mobility, our cognition. But the older I get and the more I've removed myself from that kind of bias, the more I see that we're only a specific example of something that's been present there for a long time. So, you know, it's taken me a long time and a lot of experience to get to the place where I perceive plants as equal kindred and of equal intelligence. They just do a different thing with it than hmm. they do. Amazing. Than people do. Right. Remarkable. Well, let me ask you guys both a question then that's, uh, uh, that's sort, sort of related. There's a question that came in from the listening audience, and they're asking about these ideas of entheogens, and certainly they're talking about the mushroom and uh, uh, perhaps some of these combinatory things that involve DMT, Dennis, or, or whatever. But there was an over, overwhelming uh, thread that came through an uh, email that I received before I spoke with you, and it was sort of like this. How can the listening audience help to integrate these types of ideas of intelligence in nature, symbiosis, gnosis, uh, entheogenic uh, investigation, and, and how can we help to get people to accept that these ideas are more approachable and not this whole, you know, this is your child on crack image? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, I, and I guess maybe that's, maybe that's a question that we've been struggling with for 40 years, Dennis. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. You know, I think in in this culture it's difficult you know because we are for one thing we're estranged from nature and we're you know most people don't live in a situation that they're exposed to nature and you know we're sort of trapped within uh, this culture of you know of uh, civilization in a way um, and you know, as a result, 
we experience nature at one step removed. I, I think if you, and so when it comes to, you know, in a sense, all of these conundrums about about drugs and drug regulation and what should our relationship to it be, um, in a sense, these are all sort of meta aspects of the of the you know ongoing process of uh, human plant interactions or human interactions with plant secondary compounds. I mean, I mean our you know uh, policies with respect to drug regulation, tobacco control, all of these things are you know an expression of human re- human behavior in response to interactions with plant secondary compounds right. but you know they so it sort of uh, diffuses out into the area of law jurisprudence uh, all of these all of these things if you go to a more indigenous type society that sort of lacks these overstructures that you know come with civilization you can see it in a much more raw form uh you know in in a lot of the societies in the Amazon, for example, you know, even though those traditions are threatened, they still persist. You know, and in indigenous villages, I mean, they don't have drug laws. You know, they don't have this type of regulation. They have, you know, the people and nature, and and then the role of people like shamans becomes very important. You know, what they have is wise people. You know who are the mediators of this relationship. I think we need more of that in our society, um, but I'm not sure how you implement that. Hey, Stephen, th- this sort of makes me think about some of the work that you're doing doing on ego development and this sort of thing, because this is obvi- obviously uh, a, f- a function of, of ego. Some of the cultural phenomenon that we're in the middle of that Dennis describes as so difficult to get over. Yeah, it's. You know, I mean, I've been active as a lobbyist at various parts for many years, and so seeing it from that kind of perspective about herbal practice, our healing, looking at it as a psychotherapist, looking at it as an herbalist, looking at it as somebody who works with these different mind states. Um, you know, the thing I've been most curious about really my whole life, which has informed everything, has been... You know, what are those states of mind that human beings routinely engaged in that allowed this kind of communication between nature and, and not just the mental dynamics of it, but there was this flow of of sharing of spirit between the human mm. being and the rest of nature. Right, and you've written about that. To really do that kind of work, you know, I've always been fascinated by experiential anthropology. Theoretical anthropology is ridiculous to me. So, you know, and I love Thor Heyerdahl because they said, well, you know, no, the Egyptians couldn't have sailed there. And he goes, let's find out. Yeah, get you know? a boat so, and do it. <laughs> and so Joan Halifax to me was an experiential anthropologist. And there's many people like that. And, and I want to know what is it like inside that world and how does it shift my paradigms I was raised with. And mm. so... I'm constantly confronted with the American cultural paradigm and then what happens when you move out of that and the impacts it makes on the psychological self and the structure. And, um, you know, and the subtleties of ego state expression become very paramount. I mean, one of the things I've noticed with 
the few indigenous peoples I've met and other cultures is that, and also from reading what people who met them hundreds of years ago said, is that they tend to have a kind of a childlike um, approach to seeing the world. And, you know, and, you know, and then you see that kind of concept in Christianity and several other places of being childlike. And so in starting to work with that, to see what happens when you begin to let go of the self-definition as a single-point ego and begin to have that kind of flexibility of structure. And, mm. and having worked with schizophrenics over many, many years, you know, to find out truly all human beings are multiple personalities. I mean, Goethe was really cool about that in that he said um, that the abnormal... If you assume the abnormal is normal, then you start to understand what normal really is. <laughs> and so a multiple personality like in Psycho or the movie or something like that is an extreme expression of a normal state. And everybody's had that experience of they go home to see their family and all of a sudden they're acting like they're four years old again. Or they get in a certain situation and then they're feeling very two or or whatever and so the thing that I see in our culture is that there's a tremendous terror in the overall cultural paradigm of moving out of that extremely contained definition of self as a single ego point of view mm. and that that flexibility of um, personality which is normal and inherent in human beings of course is extremely um, facilitated by entheogenic substances and you know people that move farther away from that kind of paradigm become more fringe like on the culture so for me you know I went through many years being very upset with our culture because of the repressions that are inherent in it and finally just because of my age I guess began to take a much longer term perspective you can't get rid of the human tendency for perception of multiple reality structures by putting a psychological sidewalk over. Everything doesn't work. <laughs> that, Like they put sidewalks down and dandelions still break through them. That's and right. so this capacity of the human being has to have expression and it continues to have expression because it's there for a reason. Mm. So that's why I look at schizophrenia as an ecological expression, not a a biochemical breakdown necessarily or a disease process it's a um, you know it's more of a cultural uh, ecological expression to me and so I like um, preaching to the choir because there's more and more people that feel inside themselves that something isn't quite right and that as those as we talk to those parts of people those of us who know about these other ways of being it encourages them to allow their full humanness to express itself, and that's where the real juice is for me. Fascinating. What do you make of that, Dennis? Uh, well, <laughs> he's covered a lot of territory, but I, I basically I, I agree with what he's saying. I think there is, you know, in in Western culture, there is this dynamic tension always between sort of the the impulses of the individual and the the you know the the motivation toward direct experience and direct experience that is 
not necessarily mediated through cultural filters like mm. the entheogens, for example, or other types of of uh, mind states where, you know, the, the verbal scaffolding, the verbal filters and the cognitive filters that we usually apply, you know, are temporarily disabled right, right. to allow direct experience of, you know, this, this uh, you know, this energy web, this chemis- chemical web, the, all of the energetic influences that you know, tie us to the world. The idea that, you know, the West is very invested in the notion that, we, you know, the self and nature are separate. Right. You know, it's kind of the ultimate Woody Allen comment, you know, nature and I are two. Right. Yeah, right. but that somehow the skin is a barrier, it, you know, that, that somehow it defines the boundaries between the self and nature, but that's an illusion. Hmm. You know, we are semi permeable membranes and there are things moving out and things moving in all the time we're immersed in this chemical ecology uh, you know and responding to it and and inputting into it all of the time this is what Stephen so beautifully illustrates with the plants but it's true of of any organism Mm. that this is going on and you know recognition of this is somehow threatening i don't know to this perspective is somehow threatening to western power structures which are much more invested in the notion of control Mm. and you know uh, people going out and having these spontaneous experiences you know uh i mean it, it doesn't it doesn't subserve the the control corporate agenda very well, you know, no, because they, they may not be content to go back to their cubicle after <laughs> things <laughs> like that, you know. And, and so I think in a sense, the effort to control substances and uh, humans' relationship to substances, and I, you know, I deliberately make that a very sort of broad topic that's not just about drugs you know it's about nutrients it's about herbal medicines it's you know the whole issue of you know who should own nature who should patent these plant substances it's it's really a expression of the sort of the paranoia of the of the western worldview that nature is something to be controlled and uh you know people's relationship with nature should be should be regulated and controlled and if they're not it's very dangerous you know it's it's perceived as dangerous mm. by the power structure because people may have thoughts that are uh, you know that are inherently dangerous and actually they're right they're right they you do. know that's the yeah. thing right. they 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 and have they, it right right they understand what it means to their particular uh, uh, endeavor. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of have, have wondered too about this. That that whole kind of approach, it seems to me, in looking back at it historically, that it really emerged from, in part, and I think fairly strongly from the, the kind of unique dynamics that, that were going on between early Christianity and Roman pagan approaches, mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. you know, the Christians were very oppressed and any group that is 
oppressed like that, that when they kind of get on top, they tend to oppress others that they viewed as mm. their oppressors. Right. And so that kind of movement away from nature as a living force that was more clear in Roman and Greek tradition, you know, and moving way away from that to that there's nothing in nature, which, and if you start looking at how the whole scientific paradigm began to emerge out of Christianity itself, and they were kind of curtailed in what they could say and how they could say it to get along with Christian perspective. Mm. And Christianity's really influenced scientific work a lot more than I think most people realize. Oh, and man. we kind of get to this place where, you know, there's no living intelligence or soul in nature and that actually reconnecting with that thing is considered very dangerous, as Dennis was saying. And so I tend to look at it as, not so much just civilization, but this particular kind of um, heavily Christian-influenced civilization structure that we have, you know, that there's a lot of sense to it and uh, that there's some things in it from that. And so, yeah, it is dangerous to that perspective, very much so. Well, yeah, I think I think that's interesting that, that you should bring that up because uh, definitely... Sort of the the Christian perspective has has definitely uh, very much influenced the evolution of Western civilization. And what's interesting about the influence that Christianity has had, it's essentially devalues nature and it devalues or even actively suppresses biology. Um, you know, it's sort of based on the notion that you know nature is you know part of this world and and the, the christian focus is always on the next world mm, so right. nothing in this world has you know intrinsic value so you know you can get you know on the on the further fringes of christianity for example that perspective leads to some of the uh Revelation, some of the left-behind perspective that, you know, the world's going to go down the tubes and won't we be happy when that happened because we'll all be saved and all all the bad people (laughs) will get their just desserts. But, you know, it doesn't create a motivation to respect nature. And nature becomes something to be, in a sense, feared Mm. uh, because... You know, it, it's sort of the ultimate expression of this world, and in another sense, actively uh, suppressed or opposed. You know, I mean, this this phenomenon of, of sort of the what I've sometimes called, or what I, what I sometimes think of as biological totalitarianism. Uh. You know, what are the three things that Christians fear most? Sex, drugs. And rock and roll, <laughs> right? Isn't that what it is? It is, in a and, nutshell. Yeah, in a nutshell. And what are the three things that are the expression of biology in all of its flowering mm-hmm. the most? Sex, obviously. That's how we got here. Right. Drugs, if you go back to the notion that we were talking about a while ago, that, you know, we are drugs. Essentially, organisms are bags of enzymes, neurotransmitters, <laughs> <of> proteins, <laughs> hormones, all this stuff. That's They're outrageous. drugs, right? I love it. And rock and roll, what is rock and roll if not rhythm? 
Mm. And isn't rhythm what characterizes the living state? I mean, in other words, we're not simply bags of these different biochemicals. The the bags of biochemicals are very elegantly orchestrated Mm. in, in space and time so that everything happens according to a rhythm and in terms of you know the the basic human impulse to expression you know it's rhythm rhythm is what gets you going right rhythm is what gets your feet tapping or gets you up dancing that sort of thing it's biology it's biology that these sort of you know that that this sort of authoritarian version of christianity most fears and and you know dennis certainly the 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 rhythm uh, idea is really taken uh, to the place where you can see it in the indigenous drumming Absolutely. ceremonies and this sort of right. thing. Right. Well, they're sort of the opposite of this. I mean, they celebrate all of these things. You know, they're pretty loose on the sexual side of it, and you know, in constant relationship with their with their natural environment, the plants that surround them. Right. I mean, it's just a constant thing with them, mm. and, and the rhythm as well. So. So, you know, what does that say? I mean, Christianity likes to, you know, posit itself as the culture of life, but it looks to me like it's more like the culture of death, in a sense, that it tends to, you know, I mean, its its agenda is to deny biology. Remarkable. All right, Stephen, Dennis, that's a good place to take a break here, so let's do that. We'll come back in just a minute and talk some more. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guests are Stephen Herod Buner and Dr. Dennis McKenna. You can find information about Stephen at www.gaianstudies.org. That's G-A-I-A-N studies.org. And you can also find out information about Dennis at www.hefter, H-E-F-F-T-E-R.org, hefter.org. And uh, with both Stephen and Dennis, just, just put either of their names in a search engine, and you'll find much information as well. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit back in just a few minutes with uh, Stephen and Dennis. And right now, a little more music from the spheres. We call these substances... Consciousness-expanding agents. Well, now, if consciousness does not play a major part in the future history of our species, then what kind of a future history are we talking about? stupider, duller, more animal-like? I don't think so. Consciousness is our defining quality, and it must be nourished, encouraged, 
catalyzed, never more so than now, because we have a planet in peril. Program too, if you want. 
let's see, one last thing here. Anybody out there who is uh, into astrology or planetary alignments or uh, this sort of thing, I'm interested in what was happening last night. Special alignments, anything particularly special that was happening in the, uh, in the sky last night uh, about midnight central time. So that would be midnight on the 2nd of April. Uh, yeah, just rolling over to the 3rd of April. All right, so about 24 hours ago, 25 hours ago, as a matter of fact, from now. If there was anything special going on last night in the sky, I'd, I'd, li I'd like to know about it if anybody has uh, that uh, sort of knowledge or information. Okay, uh, one last thing here. I'm going to read a poem uh, that Stephen wrote because I think it's appropriate. And uh, he's a wonderful poet as well. And I want to, to try to introduce more people to Stephen Herod Buner because he comes from a wonderful tradition and he's an amazing guy who's doing outrageously cool work. And uh, he has a lot of different gifts. And this is one gift uh, that he's given to us. This is called Flowers by Stephen Herod Buner. Semen is Latin for a dormant fertilized plant ovum, a seed. Men's ejaculate is chemically more akin to plant pollen. See, it is really more accurate to call it mammal pollen. To call it semen is to thrust an insanity deep inside our culture, that men plow women and plant their seed, when in fact what they are doing is pollinating flowers. Now, doesn't that change everything between us? Let me ask you guys both another question that sort of is related to this whole cultural idea. Dennis, there was a word that I learned from your brother uh, years ago. It's, a, it's a, a word that's used in biology, and it's called neoteny. Neoteny. Neoteny, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and neoteny means the retention of adolescent characteristics into adulthood. And... Uh, I just thought that was such a fascinating description and word because it seems to me to be a, a reasonably good definition of the state of many human beings, certainly many human males in our culture. Maybe thought you guys could give your ideas on this idea, on this idea that, that we're pretty much adult boys or something like that. Well, I think that notion of neoteny, as Terence used it, actually it wasn't his idea. It was... Um I think it was Gregory Bateson who came up with this idea. The, the notion is that evolutionarily, you know, we have a prolonged childhood, mm. right, in the sense that, you know, we're born essentially in a larval state, and evolutionarily we have to be because the head has got to be able to, you know, emerge from the womb. So you, So most of the brain development that goes on is postnatal and it's very prolonged i mean they, they now pretty much know that the human brain doesn't really reach maturity until about age 30 mm -hmm. so there are lots of things going on up until that and because we have to you know there is so much involved with with the maturing of the brain and and this sort of overlay of civilization you have to uh, acquire these cognitive structures, language, ability to write, all of these things, it takes time. And so, in a way, you know, it's an evolutionary both advantage and disadvantage for, for, a, for a newborn because a newborn is helpless, right? Without right, right. the parents, 
it wouldn't survive. On the other hand, with the protection of the parents, you know, it has the luxury of, you know, being able to go through this this process of essentially uh, uh, brain evolution that goes on throughout childhood and young adulthood. You know, it doesn't have to get up on its feet and be ready to run immediately, <laughs> right, right, like other animals do. So, in that sense. You know, neoteny, I think, is a thing. As far as uh, the population, uh, you know, as a race, we are sort of neotenous, uh, you know, or immature, certainly. Right. It's, and it's, I think that's what you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, sort of culture as a neotenizing effect, almost. Right, right. I guess the next question regard, or, or related to that, which maybe, Stephen, you could jump in on, is male initiation. I've always thought that, that there that that was a, a fundamental thing that seems to be missing culturally in the West is is some sort of an initiatory experience for men uh, to to bring them out of boyhood and into the tribe, so to speak. Well, you know, it's like I, my thinking's been changing a lot on these particular issues that you're bringing up in the last few years considerably, and. You know, I worked for years as a uh, carpenter remodeling mansions and stuff like that. Uh -huh. You know, when I first went to work, I was, how old was I? I was like 23. And I tried to avoid work as long as possible and finally <laughs> caught up with me. You know, I had to learn a trade. And so I started working with these guys and these old boys, they knew that I was as green as grass. And so they began this process of initiation. And there's an instinctive thing I've seen amongst men who work together. Hmm. You know, there's this kind of thing that happens. They work together in silence, but there's this energy that flows between their bodies that they all know about, but they never talk about it. You yeah. know? And if any male comes into that circle who doesn't understand what it is to be male in that kind of a circumstance, they have a biologically driven, it seems, need to initiate that male into the group. And so I think amongst tradesmen, people that work with their hands, I see that initiation across disciplines, whether it's electricians or carpenters or whatever. Uh -huh. Where I tend to not see it very much is amongst more white-collar people. And as a matter of fact, the way the jobs tend to be structured, they're structured in such a way that the initiation process just doesn't occur. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of great sadness in those men because of it. Um, you know, and then that there is that tendency for the American culture to be fairly youth-oriented, very adolescent, which as soon as I started moving into middle age, you know, the first time, you know, because guys, we learn to say with our eyes when we see a woman that's, you know, attractive, and we say it with our eyes, oh, you're attractive, and the woman we'll say back, oh, thank you, and you're attractive, too. And we're not going to do anything with it. It's just this very minor social flirting. Right. But when I moved into middle age and I saw a woman and I did that, and what her eyes said back was, you're old enough to be my father. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And that's the moment I became middle age. Right? And then all of a sudden... True maturity dawns. <laughs> yeah, I started seeing there's this... There's this other state of being that we move into that middle age is truly an archetype of its own mm. that has its own kind of identity and quality and perceptions and character to it that we're biologically intended to move into. 
And Bly used to say things like he said, you know, you can't understand what I'm talking about until you're at least 40. You know, it really pissed me off. I was like, hey, wait a second, you know. But then now I go, well, yeah, he was actually right. And I think that's part of the reason why. And so as I've gotten older and I start to have less of a black and white kind of a view of things, I start to see how people are not only the big broad brush thing but there's a lot of variations and there are a lot of men that go through initiatory processes it's just we're not used to thinking of them as such Mm. and because the men don't talk about it very much most people aren't aware of it and of course those kind of trades are of less and less importance each year as we go more into a kind of an information society so Yeah, I feel like I was initiated, but how many men percentage-wise are, I don't know anymore. Dennis, what do you think uh, about an initiation, and and maybe both of you, what do you think about an initiation with regard to uh, entheogenic plants? I mean, do you think that that's something that should be on the table for both men and women as a as sort of a... Uh, uh, an initiatory experience? Well, I think, I mean, yes, obviously. You know, that's one of the uh, forms of initiation that you find, you know, in indigenous cultures. And that also usually goes along with the figure of a wise man or woman, someone, you know, that holds the gnosis, that can uh, sort of be the the figure that, that can help you know, guide the initiation. I, you know, in, in indigenous cultures, you know, you have fewer options in a sense. I mean, the cultures tend to be small. There are, you know, more, uh, you know, there are only so many options for initiation, you know, in an indigenous culture, I guess. In our culture, you have so many more options on so many other levels. Some of these activities you know, like extreme sports or like, you know, hunting, like the kinds of things, as Stephen says, you might experience in, in the company of, of other men, mm-hmm. you know, although women also, you know, have initiatory, you know, contexts and experiences, uh, you know, but we don't think of them formally. We don't have that clarity, I guess, to realize that these are really forms of initiation. I mean, you know, when when it's going on, you know, I mean, Stephen makes the point that, you know, he worked with carpenters, and it was only later that he realized, you know, that he had undergone this initiation. So it was not a formal thing. It wasn't that they said, you know, now we're going to initiate you. It's just something that took place as a result of hanging out and working with these people. I think that dynamic goes on in our culture a lot. I think, and I think basically it is a good thing. I think that people are reaching out. People are reaching out for essentially a form of spiritual expression that has meaning for them. You know, uh, and and for young people particularly, when they're on the cusp of adulthood, they want a meaningful experience. You know, uh, and they they may not consciously even. I mean, in most cases, they probably don't say, you know, I really need an initiation. Right, right. You know, they don't think that clearly about it. It's just that they feel that something is lacking. They reach out for an experience, and so you know, those that. 
are lucky, you know, uh, find either a wise mentor or a situation. Maybe they go to South America to, you know, try ayahuasca and that sort of thing. Uh, others don't really have that option, and so they seek other forms of initiation. You know, um, whatever you have to do to become a member of the gang or right. whatever. Right. No These are forms of initiation. Yeah, we have, we have, uh, you know, there's certainly gang related rights of of of, uh, of initiation uh, these are tribal institutions mm. basically mm. Amazing. we're a tribal species nothing's ever going to change yeah um, yeah an interesting uh, comment for sure yeah and the thing about you know entheogens i it's been my belief and experience with myself anyway for a very long time that those kind of teenage years there's a tremendous drive in human beings for some sort of a visionary experience that, as Dennis was putting it, that, that will sort of set the tone for their or the direction for their lives. Mm. And I think there's a tremendous hunger for that. And, and to me, you know, psychotropic substances, they belong in that category. I mean, that's one of the, was one of the major influences for me back in the 60s. And, it really helped set the structure and tone and direction for my life and all of my subsequent research. And, you know, you know, I mean, I've known a lot of people that did LSD back in the 60s, you know, lots of them. And, you know, not that many of them that I know really had significant visionary experiences. For a lot of people, it was just, it was like, you know, drinking, but more fun, you know. Right. And a lot right. of laughter, and it was great. And so... No, no real... Intent. Mm. I mean, I think with psychotropics like uh, entheogens, you know, context is everything. Right, I mean, right. it, it, Leary and Metzner and people like that said it, and they got it basically right when they said it's all about set and setting. And intention, too. And in, well, intention, yeah, is part of set. Mm, you know, okay, it's okay. part of what you bring to it. In other words, mm. your experiences, what you know, uh, and your intention and what you anticipate it's going to be about. I mean, it's perfectly possible to pop LSD and go to parties or, you know, and basically do it in a way that's purely recreational and not associated with any intent or any, any desire to have insights or uncover anything. Okay. I don't say that's even illegitimate necessarily. I mean, that's, you know, recreation has its place. But, mm. you know, uh, I think that it's also possible to use it in a very different context uh, where there is an intent and there is sort of an expectation that you're going to learn something, you're going to discover something about yourself perhaps um you know our culture i mean in indigenous cultures this is this is pretty much the context in which these substances are approached in our culture that isn't even permitted i mean that is part of the answer to the so-called drug problem you know with young people i think if you could uh you know, if you could create contexts in which people could have these experiences, uh, you know, many would have them and they would benefit from them, and it would be, uh, you know, a much less of a of a problem 
than it is now. But our culture doesn't even admit, uh, you know, of the value of this type. Well, we don't have any really living mystical tradition within the body of our culture. Right, exactly. And that's a real problem. The the mystical traditions, even in Christianity, have been suppressed. Very much so. And, you know, I mean, that's a natural expression of the human being. And um, everybody benefits from it to a certain extent and so but people that have that kind of movement inside them toward that direction they have very few cultural expressions or cultural outlets that they can find that will allow that dynamic to emerge right even uh, you know and again this goes back to this notion of control yeah. i mean a lot of what ecclesiastical hierarchical religious institutions are about are control mm-hmm. And, you know, they're basically authoritarian institutions, and they frown on people having their own experiences. You know, that's not politically correct. That's no. outside the bounds of, mm. you know, what should be permitted. The experience needs to be, you know, received by the priest and interpreted and massaged and filtered and then trickled down to the masses. You know, we can't have people going off and having these you know, spontaneous experiences on their own, that's very threatening. Mm. And they're right. Again, they're right. They're These right. are threatening to the institution. Right. All right, let's, um, uh, let me switch gears here real fast uh, for a moment. And I want to talk about something that gets back to this idea of intelligence in nature. And Dennis and, and Stephen, you both mentioned that there seems to be a tendency in uh, education, for example, of, of of students to gravitate towards things like zoology rather than botany, and even energetics. I think of things like uh, engineering and and the sciences and this sort of thing. And I was reading an article just a couple days ago about this this giant, uh, what they call the Large Hadron Collider. It's a big, giant super collider, particle accelerator type thing. And and there was a, a comment that I recalled uh, from years ago that Dennis made, and. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, Dennis, but you made a comment about this idea that science looks toward these huge, high energetic experiments to try to uh, solve the, uh, the the ultimate questions of, of nature and the universe and all this thing. But in, in nature, however, uh, some of the most interesting processes occur at really low energy levels. And it, it seems that, that maybe all of this uh, scientific... Uh, uh, you know their their quest for the ultimate particle and all this sort of thing. Maybe just uh, chasing ghosts. It seems like uh, because of these other ideas that are at much lower energy levels. Well, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm all for you know high energy experiments. I think it's great, you know, that we have the technology that we can look at these processes. I think that you know, in a sense, it's. Uh, you know, it's the ultimate expression of, of the arrogance of science in a way, you know, to be able to say we can, you know, we can do these things. We can initiate these processes where literally we can tear space and time apart, you know, uh, and it's a sort of an expression of the arrogance of science that not only can we do this, but we will do it no matter what. I mean, there, I have read certain experiments that they've designed that say, well, there's a, you know, not zero probability that we may collapse space-time. Right, create a black hole. But we're going to do it, we're going to do it anyway, (laughs) 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 because we are scientists, and that's what we do, you know. But, um, 
you know, so I, I think it's good in a way that we, you know, it's an expression of human creativity and, and we can learn things about it. But, but to, to address your question, you know, I think by far the more interesting processes uh, are going on at much lower level energy levels. It's not so much about, you know, scale and energy levels. It's what's going on, you know, at the synapse, for example, or in the brain, you know, uh, these sorts of things, especially in biological processes, which are, you know, low energy low temperature processes they all take place you know well below the boiling point of water they take place in aqueous mediums and um, you know uh, I mean in from the from the biochemical energetics point of view they're fairly boring you know but from the point of view of the the intricacy of the processes what is really going on you know, that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's where the action is. Uh, you know, quantum processes, for example, in the operation of the brain, uh, you know, we know that they take place. Things like uh, electron tunneling, superconductivity, and mm. this kind of stuff. I mean, when we wrote The Invisible Landscape, this was all you know, wild speculation. Right. And now it's pretty much, oh, yeah, you know, everybody knows this is going on, you know. So I, you know, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I think we have to look at it at all levels. But right. I, I think that, you know, um, well, my, you know, it's not going to be found by the Hadron Super Collider. It's right. going to be found in somebody's test tube. All right. Well, my the purpose for my question was really, uh, for people who are listening uh, to get a feel for the fact that there are other things that are out there that are very interesting that may not have the uh, you know the flash no pun intended of the large hadron collider but there are very interesting things happening in botany and in uh, at the microscopic levels as well so. absolutely and I, and I think as you I, I think that that will come around I mean I think that you know as we begin to focus on these extremely small scale uh, phenomena which you know come up in the area of nanotechnology mm. and this kind of thing you oh, know God. these are now getting a lot of attention and they they are very sexy but what they do is you know they refocus attention from sort of the macro or the meta macro to the extremely mm. small scales uh, you know extremely small scale processes uh, and, and at some point, you know, these things come together. I mean, what happens on the quantum scale that you can measure, you know, at the, at, at, you know, uh, radii of, of the order of the atom and that sort of thing also influence uh, macro macrocosmic processes, but they're much harder to observe that way. So, so I think you're going to see a refocusing on the extremely small. <laughs> I once wanted to start a nanotechnology company, which I would call IBM, <laughs> which would stand for Itty Bitty Machines. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I remember an old, uh, uh, an old transcript of a shamanic journey that I heard years ago that was... Um, uh, documented by Joseph Campbell, as a matter of fact, and he said, uh, as the shaman was going into trance, uh, when he came out of it, he spoke and he said, "When you go into God's place, 
you make yourself small. And, mm-hmm. I, and I was always struck by that from a number of different levels, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just thought it was great. So, Stephen, if I could, I want to ask a little bit about Lyme disease. Well, that's the, the one of the emerging diseases that I've been interested in for a long time. It's uh, a really intriguing disease, and you know I think there's nothing sexier than a good emerging disease like that. You know, and, <laughs> we got plenty of those these days, it seems. Yeah, plenty of those, and you know, I mean, people consistently forget one primary fact that human beings are designed to be biodegradable. You know, and we're trying to escape that destiny. You know, so. You know, the, these kind of large-scale disease patterns that move through systems are really intriguing to me because it kind of brings us back down to our inescapable destiny. But the other thing that's fascinating to me, too, are the plant populations that move with them. And, for instance, Lyme diseases that's been moving up to in the East Coast and in that pattern kind of through there. The one primary plant that's been accompanying it, there's several, but one of them that is really intriguing is Japanese knotweed, which is considered to be an invasive botanical and should be exterminated, you know. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating when you look at the what uh, Japanese knotweed does when it goes into the system of a human being that takes it, it actually shuts down every inflammatory pathway that the Lyme disease spirochet initiates. Really? And I mean, it's like very sophisticated. I must have found 30 points of of meeting where it, it specifically deactivated the spirochet's um, impacts on the human body. And, huh. you know, this is kind of a thing that herbalists have known for a long time, which is that if they start to treat somebody or if they get ill or a friend gets ill, that the plant that they need to treat it will spontaneously start growing either in their yard or around there. And this phenomenon has been reported on for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years by herbalists. And so I love seeing that kind of dynamic. And it's, you know, one of the things I talked about in Lost Language of Plants, too, how these plant populations tend to move in response to needs that they pick up of the other ecosystem members. And mm. anyway, so Lyme disease just happens to be one of the newest ones that I'm looking at because it's such a kind of a freaky, interesting disease. Oh, it's fascinating. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, Stephen, what is your perspective on bird flu? On bird flu, it's just like, well, it's like Robert Heinlein summed it up best years ago. He said human population problems have a horrible way of solving themselves. <laughs> so is, is that what you, I mean, do you think inevitably there'll be this mutation in the flu virus and it'll then allow human-to-human uh, transmission? Is that Well, it's much? inevitable that something like that's going to emerge. I mean, flu is one of the best candidates for it because, well, for a zillion reasons. If anybody's been reading the paper, they kind of, the experts kind of go over the reasons for it being a much more important disease than malaria or something like that, for instance, because of its um, person-to-person transfer, and it just can spread around the world pretty quickly. And, uh, but the thing is Once that it crosses that threshold, but so far it hasn't done so. No, well, it has. It's kind of playing around the edges of it. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's maybe 15 diseases that are all kind of becoming sort of candidates for emerging like that. And, and I mean, part of the problem is that you, there's environmental. You know, we've already exceeded the carrying capacity of the earth, and you can't 
there's a point of no return that we're hitting. So, for instance, like um, one of the major things about peak oil, which is kind of uh, you know the herb of the day topic these mm. days, is um, you know what most people aren't looking at is what that's going to do to the healthcare system because almost all the pharmaceuticals right, right we have now. are made from oil. Right. So we've basically erected a barrier around the human species using technological medicine and. Each year we have to put more and more energy into the technological medicine we use to keep that barrier in place. And sooner or later, it's just the way ecosystems work. Sooner or later, we're not going to be able to have the energy. We just aren't going to be able to do it to keep that barrier in place. And when it goes down, mm. the gyrations that are going to occur from disease influx from this kind of temporary period that we've created since 1946 you know, before the system equalizes, there's just going to be a lot of devastation. And that's, you know, just because we have an opposable thumb and can print books doesn't mean we're immune from, you know, these kind of systematic processes. And, mm -hmm. so, and, and when that happens, probably cultures that, you know, indigenous cultures that do have a uh, reliance on plant medicines, They'll probably do all right. They'll do a lot better. But, you know, see, one of the really thing, the things that are really interesting to me is that over the last 40 years, there's somewhere between two and 500,000 herbalists that have trained in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. see, I speak at a lot of conferences, and for years I'd ask this question, you know. I'd say, well, why did you all train, decide to train to be an herbalist? I mean, it's a profession you can't legally practice. Right. <laughs> you know? And yet all these classes are filled, you know? And, and they, the 90% of the people would say something like, I don't know, I just felt like I had to. Wow. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's an ecological expression, I mean, of the human species knowing there's the skills they're going to need before too long. Right, right. So, so in a sense, this is an, a collective expression of the anticipation of this crisis. Where, yeah, I think you know, so. And you know, people and most will turn to their local herbalists. Right. And ninety percent of them are women, disguised as housewives in suburbia. Uh -huh, you know? uh -huh. And then all of a sudden. At that point of need, that knowledge base is going to still be there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very well, interesting. Ultimately, that's a good thing, you yeah. know. But there will be a huge wrench. A huge <laughs> wrench. Yeah. Of course, when the disease comes in like that, they've run simulations of this, and it always is the same because of how the system is set up. Is that the first people that die are the EMTs, the ambulance drivers, the nurses, mm -hmm. and the doctors, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then because that's the people where they concentrate the disease, and, and that's just it. It shuts down the whole system after mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. As well, I mean, another worry I have about those things, you know, I, I, inevitably I think that these mutations, you know, will take place, and how virulent they are and how quickly they spread mm -hmm. remains to be determined but in the meantime you know all of this concern about it does serve the totalitarian control agenda very well no that's true there's you nothing know. like fear to keep that stuff going yeah i mean you can you can get away with a lot in terms of quarantining people mm. you know moving large segments of populations mm -hmm. to places they don't necessarily want right. to be people will tolerate that if they think oh 
you know, it's it's an epidemic. Right. right. We have to do this for public health reasons. They'll put up with a lot more than if, you know, it's being done for some some political agenda. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and Dennis, I, you guys, that that's one of the reasons why I've, I'm glad we got Stephen's opinion because I've always had this little skeptical thing in the back of my mind that says I wonder, you know, how serious these uh, pandemic quote-unquote things are or are they just being used as another uh, manipulatory device you know for as a control mechanism i think the answer is both, both. Yeah. <laughs> well uh dennis we haven't spoken much about mutations but this idea that there are all these hidden herbalists and things like that and and people that are learning to understand these things it's it seems to me almost like an intelligence test and you have to be able to pass go, otherwise you don't make it to the next phase of the game or something. And and then I, I begin to think again about the endogenous tryptamines and if there's a if they play a role in some future advancement of the species or something like that. Well, <laughs> and I know that's a question that's unanswerable, maybe, but I know you've thought a lot about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they do and they don't. You know, I think. I mean, as I don't know if you read. My essay about ayahuasca and human destiny. I did. I did. I didn't pick the title, by the way, but um, but you know, uh, I mean, what I expressed there, you know, I, I used to be sort of all gung ho about the notion that ayahuasca could be used to treat alcoholism or drug addiction. Uh, you know, we should develop a standardized extract. We should do clinical trials. Etc. Etc. And basically, we should develop it into, you know, a pharmaceutical or a quasi-pharmaceutical. And I've sort of gotten away from that notion in the last few years, partly because I, I have come up against the regulatory wall, mm -hmm. and it's just impossible to breach in this country. You know, it's hard to, it's hard enough to get an IND approved for. You know, a common herbal medicine like St. John's wort or kava kava or something like that. They right. never anticipated that you were going to be wanting to do clinical trials with, you know, plants that contain controlled substances. Mm -hmm. I mean, this just wasn't on their radar, you know. But in a sense, I, I've stepped back from it and I've, I've come to think that, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the way to go maybe uh, you know with respect to these plants and ayahuasca is a good example you know and it, it sort of touches on this notion of plant intelligence that we've been talking about maybe ayahuasca doesn't really need you know people like me to come along and make pharmaceuticals out of it maybe it has its own way of finding the right people you know if people need 